0: I'm Richard Niles taking you into the music with another fabulous edition of The Arrangers. Tonight we're exchanging the world of easy listening and elevator music for some very elevating jazz in the company of one of the most creative and innovative musicians of the 20th century. Frank Sinatra called him the most significant figure of the modern jazz age, Mr. Stan Kenton.
1: there's no one subject that encompasses so many things that contribute toward the development of the maturity of the human
2: mind as
1: jazz music does.
2: Stan Kenton reinvented the big jazz band by innovatively combining Afro-Cuban rhythms, classical compositional elements, and of course the straight jazz music.
3: He never belonged, in a sense, in the mainstream of jazz. And he was always accused of not having enough of a beat, not having enough rhythm. And he really explored all sorts of other avenues.
1: He was six, five or six, and looked like a big stork in front of the band with the, the, the arms spread in all directions. And, and he literally drove that band there's a certain thing that takes place in jazz that helps us become aware of the common pattern of all of our personalities somehow uh, whether we speak the same language or not it doesn't make any difference if you appreciate jazz there's a certain bringing together of people that is this uh, done through the playing of jazz that uh, is something that all of us need
3: he left trails of of beauty and trails of devastation, um, as many people who are, I think, very gifted, do.
0: Stan Kenton was an intellectual, and great intellects are never easily understood. His music has caused more controversy and disagreement than any other big band. To his critics, it was too loud, too heavy, and too pretentious, but to his legions of ultra-loyal fans, Kenton was exciting, creative, lush, exotic, and serious ear candy. To the music lover who looks for something beyond mere entertainment, Kenton must stand as a hero for his lifelong crusade to push the envelope of music against enormous critical and financial pressure. He called his music progressive jazz, which literally meant that he wanted music to progress, to move forward into uncharted territory. In many ways, Kenton was a development of Duke Ellington's innovative music but although he appreciated the jazz greats who had gone before him, Kenton saw no point in copying them. (laughs) Not only did he change the sound of big band jazz with his own compositions and arrangements, but he unselfishly introduced many other talented composers to the world. Most artists find a style and spend their lives developing it. But in the course of a long and hectic career, Kenton reinvented himself and his band more than your average chameleon. So where did it all begin for a man just as full of energy as he was of ambition? We have a very
3: interesting family line on his side.
0: Stan's daughter is author Leslie Kenton.
3: It goes back to a man named Simon Kenton, who was Daniel Boone's best friend in the United States and who was an Indian tracker who left home at the age of 17 and had an extraordinary life. He actually ran the gauntlet, uh, which is where you run through these Indian braves that are actually beating you and sticking you with knives and and so forth, seven times. And of course, very seldom did anyone um, succeed in running the gauntlet even once. I think that my father's vitality comes from a lot of that inheritance. I mean, he was born in Kansas, a farm boy, uneducated. He claimed he became a musician because he couldn't play basketball well enough. And he had a mother that was very adoring of him and taught him to play piano and pushed him like mad. I think my father always had a sense of inadequacy, he was very tall, he was almost six foot five, he had huge hands, twice the size of ordinary hands, he was rather gawky, he was charming in the way that, in the way Jimmy Stewart was charming, I mean everyone adored him. And I think he needed desperately to make a mark for himself and to find his own language with his music and with the way he lived.
1: Well, I think my love affair with jazz came with my beginning of my love for music. I, uh, my mother was a piano teacher, and she tried to start me at the piano when I was ten years old, and it, of course, uh, was a failure. Then again, when I was about twelve, and that failed too. And uh, when I was 14 years old, I was down at one of the southern beach cities on the southern coast of California, and I heard a band playing some music, and I ran around asking everybody what kind of music that was, because it moved me very deeply, and uh, they said that it was jazz music. So I went home, and I told my mother I wanted to start studying the piano again, and she said, well, if you do, you're not studying from me, you study from someone else. So she farmed me out to a very rigid friend of hers, and uh, this woman wouldn't let me get by with any tricks, no faking, uh, such as I had tried to do with my mother. So uh, that really was my beginning of my love for jazz.
3: My father was very insistent about what music I was allowed to listen to. I could listen to anything 20th century, and I loved Stravinsky, and I loved Schoenberg and Bartók, but I was not allowed to listen to 19th century or 18th century music, because my father had the idea that it was, you know, not of this era, and therefore, you know, irrelevant to now. And my father and I both loved to listen to music very loudly, and my mother didn't like that. So whenever my mother was out of the house he and I would turn things up so that the uh, the windows shook. He used to sometimes awaken me in the middle of the night and ask me to come downstairs to the piano room while he would play some of this wonderful piano music. He was very shy about performing on his own at the piano. He studied music very seriously, you know. He knew Stravinsky, Stravinsky liked him very much. He studied with a friend of Stravinsky and he took all this very, very seriously. He was always seeking to create some new form of music.
0: a more than proficient pianist, Kenton's early lessons were with Earl Hines, who saw his prodigious young student in a hotel room using a cane-backed chair with a Masonite seat for a keyboard. Both of them had such a sure sense of pitch that they didn't need an actual piano. or not Stan Kenton was, as one critic famously cited, a pox on the house of jazz, remained a heated debate throughout his career and beyond. His heart lay in the future of jazz, and he never allowed himself or his audience to dwell in nostalgia. The influence of contemporary classical music on his work is huge. Just as the work of Stravinsky and Mio would occasionally bridge the gap between classical and jazz music, Kenton, coming from the jazz side, met them more than halfway. In the age of Count Basie, critics always claimed the Kenton band didn't swing. With drummers like Shelly Mann and percussionists like Carlos Vidal, this criticism holds less water than a broken colander. It's also totally missing the point. Saying Kenton doesn't swing is a bit like saying David Beckham isn't a very good goalie. Stan Kenton's unique vision of the future of music was focused on more than mere swing. Here's Stan giving his definition of jazz.
1: You know, I don't think there's anything more confusing than the word jazz and what it means to various different people and the cults and the different facets of the music. There are people that argue that nothing is jazz other than the early forms of Dixieland, those we like to think of as the purists. There are people that think that swing music, uh, jazz, uh, was born and ended with swing music, and then there are people that think that jazz also comes in more advanced forms.
0: Michael Spark is a Kenton scholar and enthusiast. Most jazz band leaders wanted
4: to swing. That was their ultimate goal, and it was the thing by which the... Critics often measured the bands, but Stan had different goals. Swinging wasn't his main aim in life. His music often pulsated to a regular beat, but the Kenton sound, it was too heavy to attain a light swing.
1: I think the criticism which comes from the jazz world and jazz musicians really is that the band never swung.
0: Arranger Alan Ferguson worked with the Kenton band.
1: <laughs> they overlooked the fact that a great amount of that was a contribution, even though maybe it didn't swing like Compacie at the time, it was a new direction. <laughs>
4: The trombone player Eddie Burt told me that one time in 1948 they were really squashed together on a small bandstand and because of that they could interact and hear each other better than usual and suddenly the band found itself swinging and Stan stopped the band and said something like, gentlemen, this is not Count Basie, this is Stan Kenton
1: the form of swing music was already in the ballrooms so it was my idea to get it out of the ballroom and get it into the concert hall really because we were too restricted in trying to play dance music I don't believe that when you uh, play music is uh, music that must serve a function. You have to remember what the function is. You don't have complete musical freedom. We used to get into a lot of trouble. We'd record this music and people would want to hear it and they'd be in a ballroom and of course we'd have to satisfy the requests and a lot of the music as I say you couldn't dance to it unless you were some creative person so we would sometimes have some real hot controversies in the ballroom because people couldn't dance to it and the other people wanted to hear it and in fact we had a couple of fights start one time
0: Those fights broke out right from the beginning in the early 40s when Stan Kenton began his quest to push the boundaries of what we think of as entertaining music with his first band called Artistry in Rhythm. With a combination of hit songs with singers June Christie and Anita O'Day and his own exciting compositions and arrangements, he affirmed what we musicians have known all along. Give them the chance to hear good music and audiences will enjoy it. Music didn't have to play second fiddle to the latest dance moves. This was music people could sit down, listen to, and be amazed. Perhaps the most startling feature was the sheer volume of the Kenton band. In 1947, he boosted the sections to accommodate five trumpets, five trombones, and five saxes. Screaming walls of brass and wind, blowing as hard as they possibly could, and threatening many a young eardrum. It was Eddie London who said that, Every Kenton record sounds as though Stan signed up 300 men for the date and they were all on time. Kids are going haywire over the sheer noise of this band, Barry Ulanoff wrote in Metronome Magazine. There's a danger of an entire generation growing up with the idea that jazz and the atom bomb are essentially the same natural phenomenon. But, as Stan says, his desire for volume wasn't always a matter of taste.
1: I personally sometimes don't think of the music as being so loud, and I, I will forget that it is strong until some person that is not conditioned to the music is placed in front of the band in maybe a small club, and uh, if they are not conditioned to the sound of the band, sometimes it will be a little frightening to them. I would like to have the fellas blow to what we call getting a full-bodied sound on the most out of their instrument, and I I like to hear the lower parts just as strong as the upper parts because I think that uh, that's the way we get a a harmonic balance. Uh, A a rather comical thing this happened a few years ago with the band. I started having trouble hearing the band. It seemed like it was having a dull sound, you know, and I accused it, uh, or rather I blamed it on the acoustics of the place, uh, and then we moved to another place, and it still sounded that way, and I kept telling the fellows that they were not blowing their parts to an even balance and that. They should blow stronger and uh, to a fuller sound and so forth. And this went on for a couple of weeks until finally one of the trombone players one night took me aside and he said, Stan, I want to talk to you a little bit. He says, I don't know whether you realize it or not, but he says, we are blowing stronger than we've ever blown in the band before. And he said, I just wonder, if there, could there be something wrong? He said, do you suppose you're having trouble with your ears or something? Because he says, sincerely, we are really straining. And so I started worrying about the thing. I went home and started working on my ears. And of course, as uh, would happen, I uh, had a collect uh, or quite a collection of wax and so forth in my ears. I removed that, and would you believe it, Steve? The next night I went back to work. I couldn't stand to stand in front of the band. <laughs> it was so, <laughs> so strong.
0: Steve Vos is a musical broadcaster and fan of Stan Kenton. I did an interview with uh, Kenton's
5: trumpet player, Jack Sheldon. He's quite a short, tubby fellow. Jack told me that uh, there were so many guys in the band that you didn't really have to play the music. He said it, it was such a lot of noise going on, they couldn't tell whether you were playing or not. And there was Stan wanting louder and louder and higher and higher. I guess some of the guys
4: must have played the music. Stan wanted... Each of his five man sections, and most bands didn't have five men in each of the three main sections the trumpets, trombones, and saxophones he wanted each of his sections to stand on its own. He used what is being called a soloistic approach, so that each section could play section solos.
0: In the 1950s, Kenton went even further with his brass sound, adding a couple of French horns to the mix. But the real innovation came in 1960, when he introduced a brand-new instrument to the band, a forward-pointing French horn called the Mellophonium.
4: The melophoniums filled the aural gap between the trumpets and the trombones. Unfortunately, The instrument itself had problems. It was a new instrument and all the problems hadn't been ironed out. So that when it was played, no one was ever quite sure what would emerge. Because it was a new instrument, no one really wanted to play it. And it was mostly trumpet players. there was always rivalry between the melophoniums and the rest of the band, particularly the trumpet section, because the melophonium players had their eyes on the trumpets, who were always regarded as the peak men in the orchestra. So the trumpet players resented them, because they knew that their chairs were always on the line, and also the melophoniums could play even louder than the trumpets when they wanted. But Kenton loved the sound. He preferred the melophoniums to the French horns because the melophoniums could shout, and Kenton liked his band to be able to shout. The French horns were too weak for him. He also thought that the melophoniums could make a lot more of a jazz sound than the French horn could.
0: The melophoniums, they were specially designed for the Kenton band, actually. Steve Vos is a musical broadcaster and fan of Stan Kenton. And they were very difficult to keep in
5: pitch, and the melophonium players used to hang about together in a little group of four, like the outcasts that they were. Kenton was very proud of the instrument and uh, liked to show it off, and he was enraged once when he arrived at a hotel where the band were playing that night. He arrived in the early evening during the happy hour at the bar and the melophonium players had all gone into the bar and got loaded and then uh, had sat by the swimming pool and after a bit they decided to throw their instruments into the pool because they made a very satisfying glug glug gurgling noise as they sank to the bottom and unfortunately in the middle of uh, this they were all falling about laughing and Kenton walked in, he'd just arrived of course there was a terrible row about that Otherwise, the main use for the melophoniums was that the players used them as... Uh, well, they used the cases as card tables. They were very good for playing cards on.
0: An iconoclast of the highest order, Stan Kenton always looked to the future. He'd often urge his band members, who included Stan Getz, Maynard Ferguson, Lee Connets and Shorty Rogers, to never look back, it's lost energy. He hated nostalgia, and this explains his refusal to play requests from his back catalog. Admittedly, there were a few obvious exceptions.
2: Honesty rhythm has uh, classical elements, has movie elements to it it was a blend of sounds which he had heard and for years it was always referred to as theme or closing theme opening theme production on theme but in reality they finally named it because the supercan, on the band was uh, stan kenton and his artistry and rhythm
0: anthony agostinelli is the author of stan kenton the many musical moods of his orchestras
2: It has elements of a classical piece. It has elements of a 20th century romantic piece. It has elements of swing when uh, the whole band comes roaring in with the swing section. And it has been uh, created to give a full range of sound.
4: Well, there's been a lot of talk, as you may know, that it was um, very similar to a theme from Ravel's Daphnis and Chloe. He always denied that there was any connection between the two at all. Kenton's uh, artistry and rhythm
5: became the signature tune, oh, in the late 40s. (laughs) It's always good to hear, never gets boring, has some lovely solos on the various recordings of it. And uh, even when challenged later on, Kenton was enraged to think that anybody might think he borrowed it from somebody else. But uh, I'll bet Maurice Ravel is uh, rolling in his grave in time to Afro-Cuban music. (laughs)
0: Artistry and rhythm may well have hinted at Kenton's fondness for Afro-Cuban music, but it was just the tip of the iceberg. Latin America was a great source of inspiration for the future of jazz.
1: There are many cultures, rhythmically, around the world that have surpassed the American's approach to rhythm to such an extent that uh, uh, we are all involved in the experimentation of different time signatures because I think that music needs it, especially jazz. Well, The Peanut Vendor has quite a story behind it. Uh, I had always been fond of the melody of The Peanut Vendor, and so I carefully thought out how it should be orchestrated and arranged what ideas should be used. And we made the peanut vendor and uh, I remember the musicians and my manager and I sitting around and having a a drink and uh, kind of celebrating this hit record that we had made and uh, it came out just as I wanted it and would you believe me the record came out about two or three months later and it didn't do anything. But I found that after a year or two then the thing started gaining in popularity and uh, over the years it's been one of our best selling records but it certainly didn't do anything for anybody when it was first released.
4: Peanut Vendor was a head arrangement which Stan brought into the studio and they worked it up from there. He knew that he wanted a trombone solo to start it and Milt Bernhardt played the theme on trombone. And then over a period of weeks the trumpets worked out their sections. Later on it always featured a Kenton piano solo. And it built up and became one of his biggest hits. It wasn't an overnight success, but it
0: built up over the years, like a lot of the Kenton music. Stan Kenton's music was the product of an immensely complex personality, a blend of probing intellect, artistic dedication, and humor. A very kind man who consistently put art above commerce, Stan just had to keep moving forward like a creative shark in the musical waters to satisfy his insatiable curiosity. He confided to his friends, if I'd stayed with artistry and rhythm and not moved so quickly into another phase, we could have had the biggest commercial success of any band the country has ever known and I probably would have been a millionaire many times over. I also would have been bored out of my skull and no doubt ended up on some pillow farm somewhere high atop the Hollywood Hills. As we listen to Johnny Richards' fascinating arrangements for the West Side Story album, we can reflect on the comments of British critic Jim Burns. As the years roll on, he said, Kenton will be seen more and more as having been rather like a man living in the middle of a lake. He could still get to the mainland for his supplies, but once back on the rock, he tended to live his own life.
3: I think I would like him to be remembered as a phenomenon a unique, vital, dynamic, complex man who never really fulfilled himself, but in the process created a lot of wonderful music that has inspired and uplifted and brought energy and dynamism to many, many people's lives.
0: Artistic thanks to Stan's very healthy daughter, Leslie Kenton, Innovative thanks to arranger Alan Ferguson. Progressive thanks to writers Anthony Agostinelli and Michael Spark and broadcaster Steve Bose. And conceptual thanks to my neophonic producer, Elizabeth Clark. Next week, we raise a glass or three to one of the most humorous of all arrangers, the man behind Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, and Tweety Pie, the swinging Mr. Billy May. Meanwhile, I'm Richard Niles saying, somewhere, somehow, there's a time for us. And it's right here on Radio. Radio